Hello. Just a quick trigger warning before we get the episode underway. Some of the following content is graphic by nature, and there is occasional coarse language. Some listeners may find it offensive, and it is unsuitable for minors. Having said that, welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. People can be very peculiar with their eating habits. Deep-fried tarantula, anyone? The Cambodians love them. Or perhaps you'd like the dish from Cornwall in England, called stargazy pie, where the heads of fish poke through the crust, giving the impression they are gazing skyward. This episode, we will take a look at three people with extraordinary eating habits. Be warned. Some of the following material may be upsetting to some listeners. Our first story takes us to 18th century France. I do apologise for the sound quality. It had been recorded previously for a different project and me being a fundamentally lazy individual couldn't be asked re-recording it. So sit back, get comfy and I'll tell you the tale of Tarare. We all know somebody that can't seem to stop themselves. Indeed, there's more than likely something you yourself struggle to keep under control. One of Oscar Wilde's quotes was, I can resist everything except temptation. And that goes for almost all of us. Be it something as innocuous as a craving for chocolate, perhaps you're a workaholic, or something more sinister like toxic substance abuse, we all have our particular thing we just can't seem to stop ourselves from doing. For me it was cigarettes. For three decades I puffed and snorted and wheezed and used them to punctuate sentences. I celebrated a job well done or eased a stressful time with deep lungfuls of rich tobacco smoke. No matter how much I smoked, around 20 minutes later, every cell in my body began to harass me into thinking I'd best have another one. But my very survival didn't depend on my satiating this constant lack of fulfilment. In fact, my survival has somewhat, statistically at least, improved for having finally stopped. Not so the subject of this story. His insatiable hunger wasn't a metaphor for an addiction or an activity. It was literally that, an insatiable hunger. Born in France in the 1700s, Tarare had an appetite more extraordinary than any human being ever documented. By adolescence, he could consume his own body weight in beef on the daily, and yet he couldn't put on weight. Unfortunately, this extraordinary need for sustenance meant his family couldn't afford to feed him, and so, as was the way for so many human aberrations in those times, he used his abnormality to his advantage and became a sideshow. Not only did he eat vast amounts of meat to the amazement of audiences, but pretty much anything and everything else too, including rocks and other inanimate objects, and a basket full of apples, though I was unable to ascertain the size of the basket and how many apples it may have contained. Not to mention, he swallowed live animals too. Whole. During the War of the First Coalition, he opted for a career change and joined the French Revolutionary Army. Military rations were too meagre to assuage a hunger of such proportions, and so he found himself wasting away, despite augmenting his diet, with items he found in refuse heaps and the gutter. He would eventually become so poorly that he would be hospitalised and become the subject of medical experiments. During this time, it was recorded that he once ate a meal intended for 15 people, including four gallons of milk, all by himself. He also ate various animals live, swallowing them whole, 
If you'd like to know exactly which animals, I'll give you a hint. A quote from Baron Percy, surgeon-in-chief of the military hospital where he was staying. The dogs and cats fled in terror at his aspect, as if they had anticipated the kind of fate he was preparing for them. End quote. Another animal swallowed whole and apparently without chewing was an eel, although he did put it out of its misery first by crushing its skull with his teeth. It's said he was especially fond of snake meat, a delicacy I've tried myself, and while I found it enjoyable, I wouldn't go out of my way to have it again, but each to their own, eh? So, how did he get such things into his stomach? Did I hear you ask? Well, accounts that describe him say that he had an unusually wide mouth. Quick aside... During the late 1980s, I recall seeing on television a gentleman called Stevie Starr. His party trick? He was a regurgitator. He would swallow light bulbs, coins, sets of keys, etc. and regurgitate them in whatever order you chose. Extraordinary, yes, but not enough material for a full episode of The Extraordinarium. I only mention him because I recall he had a rather wide mouth too. And you'd certainly need one. And a fairly wide throat too to swallow an old-style incandescent light bulb without crushing it and shredding your insides to ribbons. And those old light bulbs are similar in girth to some eels, I might add. But I digress. I was describing Terare's extraordinarily large mouth, and while I'm on the topic, he was further described as being of average height, having soft hair, stained teeth, thin lips, and believe it or not, he was quite thin. The skin from his abdomen would sag down so low he was able to gather it and wrap it around his waist. When full, the slack would be taken up and it would distend to accommodate the meal he had eaten. He was hot to the touch and was said to have been malodorous. Quote, to such a degree that he could not be endured within a distance of 20 paces. End quote. Apparently becoming even more pungent after he had eaten. Of course, there is no way of knowing, but the general consensus is that Terare suffered from an extreme case of hypothyroidism. Another aside, we don't actually know if Terare was his real name or a nickname, but I'm going to run with it. Any road, it was during this time that medical staff, keen to keep experimenting on Terare, but also sensing the mounting pressure to have him return to service, came up with a sort of compromise. And this is the part where you discover I can't speak French properly. Led by Baron Percy himself, they suggested to General Alexandre de Beauharé, I think, that Terare's ability to swallow bizarre objects be used to ferry secret information across enemy lines, and so Terare was fed a wooden box containing some papers. It took two days to pass through his system, but the box was recovered from his stool. The document, a little worse for wear from its recent journey, was still legible. And thus began Terare's career as a military courier. But first, a demonstration. A gathering of military commanders watched as Terare again swallowed the box successfully. He was rewarded with 30 pounds of cattle lungs and liver, brought to him in a wheelbarrow, which he proceeded to devour, raw. And so it was that Terare was now a spy. No 007 designation, no vodka martini shaken but not stirred. No Aston Martin. No beautiful women. Just a timber box in a pile of shit. His first mission, he was told, was of great importance. He must ferry a message into enemy territory to where a French colonel had been imprisoned. Terare crossed the Prussian lines that night dressed as a peasant, 
but as he didn't speak German, he aroused suspicion when he failed to interact with anyone, and he was soon captured by the Prussian authorities and whipped unmercifully. After 24 hours in a cell and a few more sound beatings, Terare gave the game away. His captors chained him to a latrine and waited. Eventually, nature took its course and the box again saw the light of day, and much to Terare's surprise and dismay, and the fury and wrath of his captors, the box contained nothing of any particular significance, just a note beseeching the intended recipient to confirm it had been received, and if so, to reply with any useful information such as enemy troop movements. If Terare's dignity took a hit, he had precious little time to dwell on it. He was hauled to the gallows and a noose placed around his neck. Another quick aside, not merely to create suspense, but also because there is an alternative version of this story, where Terare, after passing the wooden box, swallowed it again. The Prussians, having found nothing, didn't drag him to the gallows as a spy, but rather out of frustration at being taken in by the wild tales of a raving lunatic. This version makes a little more sense, to me at least, given what happened next. Terare, standing on the gallows with the noose pulled tight around his neck, was given a reprieve, and then another sound beating, before being taken back to the French lines and released. The whole experience left Terare feeling that joining the military may have been an error in judgment, and rather keen to go back to the hospital. The unusually motivated Terare went back to Baron Percy seeking a cure, and he was prepared to try anything. Well, anything in the 18th century didn't amount to a great deal by our standards. To put it into perspective, bloodletting was still one of the main treatments for everything. Percy did his best with what he had and treated Terare with wine vinegar, tobacco pills, laudanum and soft-boiled eggs. Attempts were made to keep him on a controlled diet, but he would steal away in scavenging gutters and rubbish piles for scraps and carrion and discarded offal from butchers' shops. Speaking earlier about bloodletting, he was caught red-handed on a number of occasions drinking from fellow patients undergoing the procedure. He was also found having a solid crack at eating corpses in the morgue. The final straw for the hospital, however, was when a 14-month-old toddler disappeared, without trace. Given the other behaviours he had exhibited, suspicion fell upon him and he was banished from the hospital never to return. There's no record of him for several years following that episode, until Percy was contacted by a Monsieur Tessier of Versailles to inform him that Terare was in their care and bade that he pay him a visit. Percy made the journey and found Terare bedridden and extremely weakened. Though Terare himself believed his current plight was caused by a golden fork he had swallowed, Percy's medical experience told him that Terare was dying, suffering from the final stages of tuberculosis. Now some of you out there have already put together that Terare, after a lifetime of gluttonous eating, was dying of a disease known at the time as consumption. And the irony isn't lost on me either. Within weeks he had passed away, his body began to decay much faster than normal, and given his pungent odour at the best of times, no surgeon wanted to dissect him, at a time when the shortage of bodies available for medical dissection meant a roaring trade in grave robberies. But Monsieur Tessier's curiosity was greater than his level of disgust sensitivity, and he performed an autopsy. 
He found several abnormalities, an unusually wide gullet, an enormous stomach covered in ulcers, no surprises there, overly large liver and gallbladder, but no gold fork. Turare was interred in a potter's field, whereabouts unknown, in the year 1798. We don't know his age, but it is generally accepted that he was approximately 26 years old. Armin Mivis, an unassuming 42-year-old computer technician from Rotenburg, Germany, had a very unusual desire. From as young as the age of eight, Mivis wanted to eat another human being. There are books filled with the names of cannibals from history. Albert Fish, Andre Chikatilo, Jeffrey Dahmer, just to name a few of the more infamous among them. But what makes this story extraordinary is that Mivers, rather than stalk and murder a random victim, advertised for a volunteer. And he found one. During March of 2001, Mivers advertised on the now-defunct Cannibalism Fetish Forum the Cannibal Creek, quote, looking for a well-built 18 to 30-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed, end quote. Burned Jürgen Armando Brandis would respond to the ad, along with several other people who would back out at the last minute. Not so 43-year-old Brandis, who travelled from Berlin to meet Mivis at his home on the 9th of March 2001. The two used a video camera to document their evening, with Brandis giving assurances that he consented to being killed and eaten by Mivis. Brandis took a considerable number of sleeping pills, which he washed down with alcohol before allowing Mivis to amputate his penis, which was fried, and both men then attempted to eat. It was a failure as the penis was too tough and was eventually fed to Mivis's dog. Brandis, bleeding heavily, was then put into a warm bath, while Mivis spent the next few hours calmly reading a book. Mivis eventually checked on Brandis, who had not bled out and was drifting in and out of consciousness. He would kiss Brandis tenderly and then finish him off by stabbing him in the throat. Brandis was then hung up and butchered. His head buried in the yard, his flesh placed into the freezer to sit alongside innocuous items such as frozen pizza. Over the following months, Mivis would consume an estimated 20 kilos of Brandis's body, preparing the table each time with his best crockery and tablecloth, burning candles, and reminiscent of the fictional Hannibal Lecter, drank a nice bottle of red. By July of 2001, a student browsing the internet stumbled upon the chat room Mivis was using. Mivis had been interviewing more people with a fetish for being eaten, it seems, and the horrified student notified the authorities. Mivis was arrested in December 2002, but there was a problem. Under German law, cannibalism is permissible, or at least it was then. Mivis was instead charged with murder for the purposes of sexual pleasure and disturbing the peace of the dead. Of course, it's problematic when your victim is a willing participant, and there is video footage confirming it. In May 2006, a retrial in a Frankfurt court eventually saw Mivis convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. 
largely assisted by the testimony of a psychologist that he, quote, still had fantasies about devouring the flesh of young people. At the time of this recording, Mivas is still alive and still in prison. Our final story today is unimaginatively titled The Man Who Ate a Plane because it's about a man who ate a plane. Not a balsa wood model with a rubber band as the energy source, not a novelty cake in the shape of a plane. Nope, a real-life, airworthy, two-seat aeroplane. A Cessna 150, to be precise. Born on the 15th of June 1950 in Grenoble, France, Michel Letito developed Pika, a disorder characterised by cravings for materials of little or no nutritional value. If you remember the television show My Strange Addiction, you may remember it showcased the disorder, with people craving things such as sticks of chalk and lounge cushions. Not only did Letito have an unnatural interest in eating the indigestible, such as broken glass and metal fragments, as it should happen, he was perfectly adapted for this little fetish, having an unusually thick stomach and intestinal lining. With such an extraordinary gift of nature, what else might one do but become a performer and use them to your advantage? And so was born Monsieur Monchu, or Mr. Etall. Throughout his career, he munched his way through some unbelievable stuff, including beds, supermarket trolleys, a coffin, a computer, seven TV sets, six chandeliers, a pair of skis, and some 18 bicycles, and an aeroplane. The plane, as you can imagine, he cut into smaller pieces and consumed over a two-year period between 1978 and 1980. But fair play to him. He did it. Letito passed away from natural causes in 2007 at the age of 57, going down in history as having one of the most extraordinary diets ever documented. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.